Hey everybody, thanks for listening, and as always, thanks to our sponsor, KnowledgeBand, the leader in human performance improvement training and technologies. If you want the most advanced safety technology adapted from the human performance principles of the nuclear and aviation industries, then KnowledgeBand is error reduction that works. They were the first company to tie human performance to serious injury and fatality or SIF precursors. Learn more at knowledgevine.com. In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Today, my guest on the show is Tom Node. Oh, it's Canode, Russell. If I were a real podcast host, I would know that sort of stuff. (laughs) No, yeah, I get that all the time. I'm sure you do. I also, I'm not supposed to ask questions I don't know the answers to, but I'm probably going to do that here in just a second. So it's K-N-O-D-E, but it's Canode. And correct. what background is that? Danish. Danish. Okay. All right. Yes. Very good. Okay, so folks, this is another great guest we have on the show here. Tom is the owner of Quantum AI LLC. And before everybody, tell me what's Quantum AI? We're going to talk about artificial intelligence today. (laughs) No, Russell. The AI in Quantum AI stands for aviation intelligence. The company was founded by aviators. So the CEO is a fixed-wing pilot who just landed in Florida on a 767. So we have a combination of fixed-wing pilots and rotary pilots that started the company, and I was brought in as the industrial safety, oil and gas safety expert. Okay, so let's talk about that. Your background is oil and gas, right? That is correct, Russell. I've been in oil and gas for um, my entire life. And I know that can be a trite phrase, but I'm fourth generation oil and gas. So I grew up at the table hearing stories and I saw my first blowout when I was 10 years old. Oh, you did? Yes. Obviously, you were at the location with your father? I was at the well site with my father in Western Alberta. And when you're 10, you don't really understand what's going on. I was looking at the windshield of my father's Jeep They were doing a completion, and I could not understand why all the people were running away from the rig. I was a fair distance away, and all of a sudden, all these people start running, and stuff starts coming out of the well. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what that is. So that was my first witness of a blowout. Wow. So you said Western Alberta. Are you from Canada? I was born in Canada to parents who were from Texas. Okay. Because um, my grandfather was uh, moved to Canada, I want to say in the 50s, but well, he helped start the Energy Conservation Resources Board. They've changed their name since then because his experience, he was at the Texas Railroad Commission when they first started their oil and gas division. So he was a petroleum engineer consultant who went up to Canada to help them set up their engineering portion to manage production from the Turner Valley field in Alberta. Okay, so your grandfather, you say that's the 50s, and then you say your fourth generation, so your great-grandfather was even before that, huh? That is correct. My great-grandfather, and I can't tell you how he got started, I just know he was in the oil business in West Virginia, 
and he ran a torpedo company, then moved to Tonkawa, Oklahoma. Wait, he's in the oil and gas business. How do you run a torpedo company? For those of us who are oil and gas historians, or any of you who are fascinated by the history of oil and gas, the way we used to complete oil and gas wells was not with fracking, it was with nitroglycerin. Torpedo was a long tube that you loaded nitro into and dropped down the well. And when it hit bottom, it blew everything up and completed your well to allow for production. (laughs) Nitroglycerin, huh? Yes. That sounds a little dangerous. (laughs) Yes, quite dangerous. As a matter of fact, that's how my great-grandfather met his untimely demise. Oh. He and his partner were standing on the rig when the torpedo caught about the first or second joint down and blew up basically the rig and everything around it. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That's unfortunate, but a perfect segue into why I had you come on the show today, because you mentioned your background in safety and your association with aviation, and I happen to know that safety in aviation involves human performance. So does that kind of make you a human performance expert? Yeah. What I like to say, Russell, is that I don't consider myself an expert. I consider myself someone who's had a lot of experience in a lot of different things. What I would say is I understand it way more than I did even 10 years ago. I find it a fascinating field of research because we know more about how the human brain works, why system one and system two are important in understanding the concepts that we often term as complacency and common sense. But once you understand how the brain works, you recognize that those are inadequate terms for what we actually see. And that applies to safety. In order to build resilient systems, you need to understand in aviation and in industrial safety that the brain wants to save energy. The brain doesn't want to use energy it doesn't know is there. It'll go into auto mode. And that auto mode we call complacency and preconceived notions that we call common sense or actually cognitive biases. And again, they impact our view on hazard recognition and risk management. It's one of the foundational elements of human and organizational performance or safety too that a lot of people are talking about these days that, again, we didn't even have concepts of 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. I'm looking at one of your posts here on LinkedIn. It's entitled Planning for Performance Improvement, the Meaning of Safety Leadership. You want to talk about that? Absolutely, Russell. So what I've learned and observed over the years, and this is a lot based on both personal experience and what I've seen, what I've been a part of, and also the research around safety culture, leadership, and engagement, is that article was talking about at a higher level how you develop safety culture. And the reason I want to start with the concept of safety culture is that we know you can measure safety culture, or as some like to call it, the culture of safety. You can see what people's beliefs are around an organization's messaging in safety, and their beliefs drive their actions. That's why safety leadership is so critical to performance. If you have organizational leaders, and I'm not talking about functional leaders right now, I'm talking about the operational leaders who actively engaged in both the messaging and the delivery of safety, you see the impact of it. You'll see performance improve as a result of the message that's sent by the operational leaders. I've had the distinct honor and pleasure of working with some fantastic operational safety leaders. Now, again, they weren't functional leaders. They were operational leaders 
who were very engaged and interested in safety. And as the functional support, I worked with them to help them understand what they need to do. And then they went out and engaged the organization around safety. With that, you end up with more engaged and a more engaged workforce, more engaged employees. And I mentioned earlier about part of this is personal experience and part of it is the research that's available. So I've personally witnessed huge safety transformations in organizations where the operational leadership took an active role in planning for performance improvement, which is what that LinkedIn article was about. But they didn't just sign off on the plan. They were actively involved in the execution of the plan. And again, when you end up with employee engagement, I always fall back on the research by Gallup. Gallup has done some phenomenal research for decades around employee engagement business performance. And they have asserted that there is a direct connection between employee engagement and performance of the company, so much so that they'll claim that a company that's top quartile employee engagement versus a company that's bottom quartile employee engagement has, among other things, 64% lower safety incidents, 23% higher profitability, 81% decrease in absenteeism. So those are some of the metrics that Gallup has developed through their research. And again, I've seen this personally. I've seen entities that were doing a decent job on safety But once they took engagement seriously and once they planned for performance improvement, the leadership came from the operational leaders with support from the function. And I've seen organizations go from, again, a good safety performance to excellent safety performance. And there was visible changes in the organization in the way we did our business, as well as a palpable engagement of employees where employees would walk up to any executive, any leader, and engage in a conversation around safety and what they need to do their job and minimize the hazards. And that was a change from years before where safety was done to them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what you're saying is you sort of have three layers here. So you, you have informed and engaged executives who empower the leaders or what you're calling functional And then that makes its way down to the employee, and it's kind of a free-flowing system between the three? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've seen the continuum of leadership. I've seen plenty of leaders who sincerely said safety was important to them in the health and well-being of their employees, but I've seen some of them not engage at all beyond sending the message. And when all you do is send the message and you don't get engaged What you do is you leave an opening for people who, as I mentioned in that LinkedIn article, I've seen others take that message as, well, it's not important enough for them to get engaged. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. And so it's up to the individual to drive performance. I've seen it work very well when the senior leaders get actively engaged. And again, the development and execution of performance improvement plans, but then It's not just the plans, it's the execution of the plans, it's what sort of oversight they're providing. And as your organization understands that at any time a senior executive could say, where are you with the execution of this plan? They better not stutter, they better not hesitate in their response on here's where we are on the plan, here's the obstacles we're seeing, here's the progress we're seeing. 
and you raise the level of discussion in the organization beyond solely a focus on lagging indicators. Historically, a lot of companies would say, I'm going to get interested in this when there's an injury. That's in the culture, like the DuPont or the DuPont Bradley or in the Hudson safety culture maturity curves, those are reactive cultures. The only time someone gets interested is when an event occurs. The proactive cultures are the ones where people are actively engaged in identifying and managing hazards and risk. And it's a constant dialogue from top to bottom about that. But it doesn't mean it's 100% of their job. A lot of people fear that it means it takes over of their operational role, and it doesn't. What it means is they're actively engaged in execution of plans that are designed to reduce risk and improve safety. Back to what you were just saying, that actually increases productivity. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've seen the, as people get, as they identify risks, a lot of times when people are taking chances and displaying at-risk behaviors, a lot of times that slows productivity down, not just because an incident could occur. And a lot of times the incident can result in multiple things. It could be an injury. It could be non-productive time. And it's because the way they're doing their job is the way they've always done it, but it's an at-risk activity. And by reducing the risk, you reduce the chances of some sort of failure where the organization needs to jump into trying to figure out how to fix that and prevent it from happening in the future. What I'll say about that as well, Russell, is there are some techniques that I've been exposed to over the years, some really clever ways of looking at how you look at investigations and corrective actions. There's a lot of great incident investigation tools out there, and there's some really good corrective action tools. And once you start understanding what a real corrective action looks like, it again elevates the discussion within the organization about, well, how do we fix this problem? Not how do we just say we did something and hope it doesn't happen in the future? That particular attitude, I guess, did come out of the aviation industry, right? Absolutely. Aviation industry looks at fixing problems a different and very sustainable way. It's not just tell people to do better. It's not tell the pilots to fly better. You know, that's, I know a guy who says it just drives him up the wall every time he hears, and he's a safety consultant and he says he goes out to the job. And so maybe they have their tailgate or they go over their JSA or whatever, you know, and then the last thing the guy says is, Hey, everybody be safe. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And unfortunately that message, it's like telling somebody to drive safe. What does that mean? Well, drive safe means There's elements of safe driving, defensive driving that you employ to drive safe. Follow the speed limits, follow the posted signs, follow the rules of the road and drive defensively. That's what drive safe means. But be safe. Again, if you're given a context, a work context where you're taking unnecessary chances because of the way the work is designed and the tools you have, then be safe doesn't help. Absolutely. But again, it's Do employees know what to do to work safe? And this is where soft work authority is a great point on that, on being safe. Because a lot of people say, well, our employees are given the right or the authority to stop work. But there's two requirements for stopping work. One is the person has to recognize the hazard, and they may not for a variety of reasons. They may not understand the hazard. They may not understand what could happen next. And then the second thing could be true that's not going to allow them to stop work, and that is the organizational culture 
and how they're going to be perceived if they try to stop work. So if you have people who say, I want to stop work, but they've had a bad experience in the past, or they've seen bad things happen to people who try to stop work in the past, then they're going to say, no, I'll just assume nothing bad's going to happen right now. And their cognitive biases might say that, yeah, this has happened a bunch. This sort of activity has happened a bunch. Nothing bad's ever happened, so it won't happen this time. It's called gambler's fallacy. And that bias might lead them to believe that inaction is the only course of action when, in fact, that time a problem occurs that hasn't occurred in the past, even though the conditions were the same as in the past. And so stop work again, be safe, are messages you can say, but the organization, the individual is going to respond to how the organization treats someone who tries to stop work. Again, if they know that it's very difficult to stop work, telling them to be safe when they're not adequately managing the risks of work, it won't be helpful. Exactly. Okay, so you've thrown out some terms here that I'm interested in and I want to flesh out a little bit because you've used the term cognitive bias a couple of times. And then the first time you used it in reference to uh, complacency. And then just a while ago, you talked about gambler's fantasy. Flesh some of that out for me, please. All right. So again, the things we know about the brain now, the brain is a very large consumer of the body's energy budget. And as such, it wants to conserve energy. And the part of the brain that uses the most energy is the prefrontal cortex. That's the thinking part of the brain, system two. As a result, our bodies want to conserve energy. Our brain wants to conserve energy. So we want to act in system one. So let me ask you, Russell, have you ever left your house and thought, did I lock my house? Did I close my garage door? Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Everybody has. Did I unplug the iron? Did I turn off the stove? Did I turn up the AC or down the AC? Whatever it was, your brain wants to automate processes. And those are called the automation of that is where it moves from system two into system one. You don't want to have to think about it because that's an energy conservation mode for your body. What your brain does is develop shortcuts, and those are called cognitive biases. Your brain's short. Your brain applies a bias to a situation so that it doesn't have to think about it. And I'd mentioned gambler's fallacy. That is the law of large numbers where you assume that because something has happened a whole bunch in the past in one way, that the risk is lower. If you're tossing a coin and you've had seven heads in a row, gambler's fallacy is, is that the uh, eighth time will be heads. But in fact, the odds are the same every time you toss the coin. And so you can't predict what the next thing is going to happen just because it's happened one way in the past. The cognitive biases are a part of how your brain responds to wanting to save energy. Now, probably, again, I don't proclaim myself to be a brain functioning expert. I've read just enough to be dangerous, but <laughs> the parts I apply are, again, part of the discussion of HOP or safety too, where we're talking about in the past, we've said people are complacent. What we recognize now is that the brain wants to function in a certain way. It wants to not consume energy. And as a result, you might move into system one, especially when you're doing repetitive tasks and you get that thousand yard stare. And as a result of that, people say, well, that worker might have been complacent because they didn't see what was going to happen next. If, say, somebody on a rig tries to catch when you're pulling, pulling pipe and you're a thousand feet in and all of a sudden the pipe swings and somebody tries to catch 
a string of pipe. Your brain's gone into system one where you respond, you react to the environment without thinking through, can I really catch 6,000 pounds of pipe and do anything about it? And again, that's when your brain's gone into system one. It's not complacency, it's energy conservation. I also talk about how common sense, when you understand how the brain works, common sense doesn't exist. We say, well, that just lacks common sense. Well, no, because everybody has a different experience. Everybody views risk in a different way. Not everybody would want to jump out of an aircraft with a parachute. Not everybody would want to swim with sharks. There are people who are very risk averse and people who enjoy the thrill of something. You're assuming that everybody's going to view the risk of work the same, and that's not true. You can't just say, well, common sense dictates you do this. Well, whose sense dictates that it does this? And that's why you can't just make those assumptions when you're trying to manage risk. You have to foresee that this is the way humans are going to perform, and what do you do to make the system more resilient? And that's what safety leadership needs to do. Absolutely. With safety leadership, you engage employees, you start understanding. I mean, I've seen plenty of examples where a process was done one way for years or decades. And until the employees were engaged and asked to go look at how they do their work by leadership up the chain, then all of a sudden they go, oh, yeah, maybe that's not the safest way of doing things. Nobody had ever challenged it before. And You get that in part when you do observations, hazard behavior observations. That is a way of engaging employees. And again, it's about how the organization reacts and maintains that interaction so that it's not just a point-in-time contact. If you're told to do two observations a month, that may be the extent of what you do for engagement. Again, what we know from Gallup Research is the more engaged your employees are, the better your business performs. And one of the ways of engaging employees is getting them engaged in managing and reducing risk of what they do. Yeah, and when you make those observations, they need to be, and we say this all the time on this show because there's no phrase I despise more than the phrase safety cop. The idea behind these observations is not we're trying to catch you doing something wrong. In fact, when you engage the employees, we're really wanting to observe and sort of, as I put it, catch you doing something right. And we hope we observe you doing things right a whole lot more than we observe you doing things not right. But again, those sorts of observations work to an extent, but they're not a full amount of engagement. So the upside I've seen where people make observations and problems are fixed, but I've also, I was in a safety meeting a few years ago where we were talking with the employees, and this was during COVID, and we had just restarted safety meetings, talking to employees about, we've seen a drop-off in observations. We want to see more observations. And one of the employees raised her hand and said, you know, we've had this issue out here for years around an overhead crane. We've turned in a bunch of observations and nothing's ever been done. Ah. Yeah. And so the employee said, why should we bother? So what was the purpose of that observation program? Was it to gather numbers for somebody else? And I've seen that plenty of times where, oh, yeah, we had 500 observations last year. Let's get 600 this year. Yeah, but what did you do with them? How did you action them? Right. How did you use the data? Because leadership has to use data to understand why the gaps between standards and behaviors exist. And then they got to take actions to mitigate that risk and design processes and procedures and training and all that, right? Correct. Absolutely, Russell, because it's not good enough to have a program. You have to act on the observations for the employees to believe you're sincere 
in managing risk. Otherwise, it's just a numbers game. I've seen plenty of times where observation cards, the physical cards sat in a corner of the safety manager's office, never to be acted on, just counted. Oh, that's a shame. Okay, folks, that right there, that was worth the price of admission, I think. Tom, again, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Russell. As I've told you, and I actually usually tell all my guests, I'm proud of the fact that this is considered to be the uh, number one oil and gas HSE podcast. And it's certainly not because of the host, but it's because of the quality of guests that we have on. And one final thing is we could talk about this for another 30 minutes. So we may have you on again. In fact, absolutely, you're going to be a speaker at it's the UTA. That's the University of Texas at Arlington. It's the OSHA HSE Safety Conference, right? That's what it's called, I think. That is correct. Yeah. The oil and gas, as historically the safety conference, they've expanded to environment in November in Houston. Okay. So folks, you might want to check that out. It's a great conference. Tom, you're going to be a speaker there. And I think OGGN is going to be there doing some podcasts. So we may get you and some of your other compadres to sit down and talk some more about safety next month. Again, thanks for coming on. As always, thanks to everybody out there for listening. You're the reason why this podcast is number one. We really appreciate it when you write us good reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or you can look in the show notes. There's a simple review link there that you can press. Please tell your friends to listen. Post us on LinkedIn and all your other social media. Remember, this podcast is made available because of our sponsor, KnowledgeVine, and their website link and other contact information is also in the show notes. Or you can always contact me and I can get you in touch. Again, Tom, thanks. And everybody out there, we'll see you next time. Thank you, Russell. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.